Hi, this is Mark Brady. I'm the pastor at Anchor Faith Church in Valdosta, Georgia. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast today. We believe it will bless you and minister to you. I get ready to receive a word from God. We've been teaching now for the last couple weeks on this tangent of this idea, religion versus kingdom. Religion versus kingdom. You know, it's really, it's not God versus Satan. Just want you to know that. It's not you versus the devil. The devil is not your problem. I know that may go completely against all you've heard your entire Christian life, fighting off that big bad devil. If we could just get the devil off of our back, if we can just get the devil off of our trail for one second. No, he's not your problem. Jesus made sure of that on the cross, and that's why he uttered three words that changed destiny forever. It is finished. And he didn't finish it on the cross for you to take it back up and start it all over again. He finished a finished, completed work of Christ on the cross. It's done. It's over. He is a defeated foe. If you only knew in the spirit, if you could only see in the spirit for just even a split second of what Jesus made available for you on that cross, you would never toil, you would never strive, you would never stress, you would never worry about what the devil can do to you. What can man do to me? Amen. I am more than a conqueror. I am an overcomer. I am the head and not the tail. I am above and not beneath. Come on, you got to start declaring this and, 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 and proclaiming this over your life. That is who you are. That is who you are. But now we have this idea of religion because as we, as we move the needle further from darkness and, and travesty, what happens is, is if the devil can't, uh, you know, get you to walk in blatant sin, he'll get you to walk in deception. If the devil can't uh, trick you into just openly straying away from God, then what he'll do is he'll move you further away from the kingdom while you believe you're pursuing it. And religion opposes the very thing it believes it pursues. Religion challenges the very thing it believes it's pursuing. It's running hard after. Religion is laced with deception. Religion embraces the true nature of the devil, of the enemy, because it thinks it's one thing, but it acts completely different. It behaves one way, but it really buys into this complete lie that it actually becomes the very thing that opposes the kingdom, that does not advance the kingdom. And so we have to address this issue of religion. We have to address this issue of behaving one thing. Religion only produces hypocrites. I'll say that again. Religion only produces hypocrites. The number one thing Jesus addressed the most in his time on earth, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, was hypocrisy. You know, there, there, there's different types of people in life that you just can't help as much as you want to. And one of those is people that don't think they need help. You ever tried to help someone that doesn't believe they need any help? <laughs> That's a waste of your time. That's a waste of our time. And you can't help 
a deceived person. You ever try to tell a deceived person they're deceived? <laughs> it don't work. Because they're, de- they're too deceived to see that they're deceived. <laughs> that's, 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 that's how deception works. So we've got we've to be careful. There, there seems to be this, this thing, this warning uh, that the word gives us that as, as we move deeper into the things of God, we can actually find ourselves moving further because knowledge will puff up. And rather than further humility, pride will show up. And I believe it's possible for, for kingdom people. And in fact, I believe it's necessary for kingdom people to have a stiff spine, but yet still have a soft heart. And as our, we, as our, uh, st- our, our spine stiffens, our, our, our boldness increases, and it ought to increase, we still must keep a tender, soft heart that can still be plowed by the word of God and and still be uh, moldable and teachable and in a posture of growing and learning and desiring to become more and more of what he's already made us to be. I'm not talking about weakness. I'm not talking, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the Bible, you know, Moses, he wrote this of himself, actually, that he was the meekest man in all of the earth. How would you like to write your own book and put in there that you were the the most of something? I guess if you write your own book, you get to do that. You say he's the meekest man. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is a strength that can still be steered. And so the thing is, is that in our boldness and in our strength and in our uh, you know, uh, you know, really drilling down into who we are as kingdom people, we don't have to become puffed up in pride. We don't have to become uh, the, the very adversary of God rather than the advocate of God. Does that make sense? You know, Peter, in his attempt to be Jesus's friend, became Jesus's obstruction. We love to read Matthew 16, 13 through 19, you know, where, G, where, where Peter reveals that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, right? And, and, and man has not revealed this to you. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my Father who is in heaven and these keys I will give to you, the keys, whatever you forbid on earth, whatever you allow on earth. We love that passage. But if you get just a couple more verses past that, Jesus begins to lay out the plan, begins to unfold his mission. I'm going to be handed over. They're going to mock me. Uh, they're going to going to ultimately kill me. They're going to put me to death. I'm going to be crucified. And then three days later, I'm going to rise again. And Peter steps up right in Jesus's face and says, may it never be. And in his attempt to be Jesus's advocate, he actually becomes Jesus's adversary. Jesus says this, get thee behind me, Satan. Now, Satan is not just a name for the devil. Satan literally means adversary. It literally means obstruction of something. He says, you're obstructing my purpose. He goes on to say, for you have your mind set on the things of man, not the things of God. Religion never has the heart of God. Religion never has the heart of God. 
Religion never has the true nature of the Father. And in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus actually addresses some of these Pharisees and their activity. In verse 1, it says, Some Pharisees and teachers of religious law now arrive from Jerusalem to see Jesus. They asked him. You're going to see that a lot in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the religious leaders, they ask a lot of questions. But I'm telling you right now, you can ask questions and never desire to learn anything. They ask a bunch of questions, but they don't desire to learn a thing. There's nothing in them that says, we want to grow. Please show us the way. If we're wrong, we'll change. That's why Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance is the prerequisite. Repentance is changing your thinking. He's letting you know up front, everything I'm bringing is going to completely push against what you're already doing. So unless you have a heart and a mind that says, I need to turn from my ways. See, repentance is turning from so I can turn to. He's not bringing a kingdom that you can add to your life. He's bringing a kingdom that will change your life. And if you want true transformation, if you want true change, then you're going to have to be willing to abandon and let go and walk away from some things that you thought were the way, that you thought were acceptable, that you thought were uh, uh, tolerable, that you thought were the kingdom of God. And you're going to find living the true kingdom life that there's a lot of things we do that just don't jive with God's plan. And that's okay. They're not supposed to because he's got, much, he's got much better plans. For I know the plans I have for you. We love to quote that verse, but are you willing to trade in your plans for his plans? And so the posture of our heart, I, I, I ministered earlier this year, I think it was on Sundays, I, I ministered uh, at length on the posture of the heart. The receptivity of the heart. And you've got to be very careful with that. You know, I would encourage you, on your way here, I mean, you're already driving here, you've already loaded up the kids in the van, you've already done everything to, 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 to set your plan in motion, I'm going to church on Sunday morning. On your way here, just pray. Lord, I pray that I receive the word of God today. I pray that my heart is teachable, moldable and receptive to your word it's a simple prayer but it will change everything because this is the thing when this is communicated it will only increase the posture that your heart is in when it comes if you have a hard heart to the word then guess what when you receive when you hear the word it'll just further harden it if you've got a soft, moldable, pliable heart, guess what? When the word comes, it'll make it that much more softer and more pliable and more moldable for the kingdom of God. The same sun that softens and melts the ice hardens the clay. And so the posture of your heart is so important. It's such, a, 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 an, it's such an element that if you think church starts at 1030 when they strum the guitar and lead you into the first song, you're, you're sadly mistaken. You, you're already behind the eight ball. 
You've got to play catch-up. Honestly, one of the reasons why we do worship, uh, praise and worship, before I come up and speak, again, it's not religious formality and practice. It's an opportunity for you to set your attention and your affections on heaven. It makes my job so much easier when you enter into praise and worship. You don't, know, you don't know what it does for me as a minister and as a pastor. That they're, they're helping me as, you're, as they're preparing you. So when I get up here, you already have a heart that's receptive, that, that's open. Colossians 3 says, set your mind on things above, not on things below. And where you have your mindset this morning really will dictate where you go from here. But when we come asking questions, even in a desire to learn, the religious never ask questions to learn. You know, you'll look in the Bible, the devil asks questions, and God asks questions. You ever notice that? I mean, right there, right out the gate, Genesis chapter 3. Has he said, do not eat? The fruit of any tree? That's the devil asking man a question. And then you get down, you know, after man sins, after man uh, disobeys. Verse 9, verse 10, somewhere in there. God shows up. And what's the first thing he does? He asks a question. Adam, where are you? You think God's asking Adam where he is to find him? Or do you think he knows? The enemy will ask questions to distort the truth. God asks questions to reveal the truth. You see the difference? When the devil asks a question, he's trying to manipulate. He's trying to twist. He's trying to pervert. When God asks questions, he's trying to draw you. It's an invitation into truth. Adam, where are you? Will you give me a true and honest answer? Or will you continue to hide in shame and guilt? Or will you rely on your own ability? Or will you blame someone else? I love Adam's response. He blames both his wife and God in the same sentence. That's a whole, that's, woo. You're sleeping on the couch, bro. That woman that you gave me. (laughs) Man, he's just making enemies all around. That's not a good place to be. No, God is asking the question to reveal to Adam, we've separated. Division's shown up. We're not on the same playing field. It's an invitation to truth. But these religious leaders, when they're asking questions, they want to distort. They want to manipulate. They want to twist. They asked him, why do your disciples disobey our age-old tradition? Oh, man, religious people love their tradition. For they ignore our tradition of ceremonial hand-washing before they eat. Look what Jesus says in verse 3. Jesus replied with a question. There's two questions. There's religious questions and then there's Jesus questions. Just like Genesis 3. Just like Matthew chapter 4. If you are the son of God. 
Look what he says. And why do you, by your traditions, violate the direct commandments of God? Wow. What a powerful passage that shows us that if we're not careful, our religious activity will actually draw us further away from God's commands, God's principles, God's values, God's standards. These Pharisees and Sadducees did not share the values of heaven. They did not share in the Father's nature and heart for mankind. And this is what religion does. Religion absolves itself from all kingdom activity and fills that void with inferior activity. I'll say that again. Religion absolves itself from all kingdom activity. Religious people love statements like, God is in control. It sounds churchy. It sounds acceptable. It has an air of honoring and valuing who God is. But at its core, it's a relinquishing of partnership with heaven. It's a relinquishing of what you were called and assigned to do here and now in the earth, ruling and reigning in Christ. It sounds honorable. It sounds humble. It sounds, uh, it, it has this air of, oh, we just worship the, the great and mighty God, the God of the universe. Well, you know what the God of the universe said? Let them have dominion. Let them rule. Let them oversee the affairs of the earth. Let them manage that territory, that domain down there called the earth. That's what Jesus, that's what uh, God, by the word of out of his mouth, that's what he said. And you know what? God is a sovereign God. He's so sovereign that when he speaks a word, he cannot take it back. That's how sovereign he is. When he declared that man would rule and have dominion, guess what? Man would rule and have dominion. And, and God would not do anything to step in and go back on his word and say, well, man messed up, so I guess I got to get down there and intervene. So you can say God is in control all you want, but what he's in control of is his word. So when he speaks a word, it becomes law, it becomes a decree, it becomes a life in that moment, and it cannot be taken back. God is not a man that he should lie. Religious people love statements like, I'm just a sinner, saved by grace. You see, they always have a tradition. They always have a statement. And man, they can give you 10 or 12 scriptures to back up their statement. Because that's how religion works. Religion isn't writing its own Bible. It's using the word of God, twisted and manipulated. Come on. It's called deception. And these individuals now are questioning Jesus on ceremonial traditions. Religious practice, formality, performance, uh, rituals, if you will. Traditions. I, you know what I call traditions? Inferior activity. I'm not saying they're wrong. 
I'm saying that without the nature and the heart of the Father behind it, it's going to take you down a completely opposite path of what God intended for his kingdom people. And these are individuals that do not have heart in value. They do not understand the nature of God. They do not share in the values that the heavenly Father shares in. I'm not telling you that kingdom people are a bunch of do-nothings. I'm not telling you that the kingdom people are a bunch of people that just sit around and, and, and you know, don't, don't have any responsibilities. Don't, you'll find there's actually more responsibility and freedom than there is in slavery. Y'all hearing me? To go on the flip side of that and to say that I'm free and I can live however I want and I can do whatever I want is also not the heart and nature of God. It's about which one is leading you. Are the traditions leading you or is the heart of the Father leading you? They had crazy traditions. They would get mad at Jesus because he would heal a man on the Sabbath, on a Sunday. The day of the week was such a traditional day for them that they couldn't see the fact that somebody was healed, somebody was restored, somebody was set free, somebody was delivered, you would be surprised at how some of the most miraculous things will disrupt the most religious people. You want to find the religious people? Just do a miracle. You want to find the religious people? Open blind eyes. You'll find out who's religious real quick. See a lame person walk for the first time. Watch the dead get raised. Watch the demons get cast out. And you'll find the religious people real quick. Because they're not interested in redemption. They're interested in religion. And religion will never bring you to redemption. Never bring you to the goodness of God. It's the goodness of God. It's the kindness of God that leads all men to repentance. So Jesus is addressing uh, a folk. Well, honestly, uh, these individuals are addressing Jesus. Jesus is just going about his normal business, bringing the kingdom to the earth. And it's completely disrupted their religious code, their religious practice, their religious formality. And so religion will absolve you from all kingdom activity. You'll, you'll, you'll say things that... Uh, you know, relinquish your role of partnership with heaven. But you'll fill that void with activity and traditions and practices and rituals because you don't want to just sit around and do nothing. I've got to be, I've got to at least look churchy. I've got to at least, at least look like I'm, I'm sanctified, I'm set apart, I'm redeemed, uh, I'm delivered, I'm of the kingdom. And so it wears kingdom on the outside, but on the inside. Jesus called these individuals whitewashed tombs whitewashed tombs. You're a graveyard on the inside, but on the outside, you're all dressed up. That's religion. Now, that doesn't mean you, you tear down the outside to match the inside. That means you get the inside to match the outside. We need a people that are saved from the inside out, not from the outside in. So these traditions, this activity, it will separate you more and more from God's intentions. Uh, look at this in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. 
I don't know about you. I'm, I'm ready to tear down every religious. You know, can I just say this without it sounding weird? Religion is a spirit. There are religious spirits. That doesn't need to freak you out. It doesn't need to sound weird or it doesn't need to sound kooky. I'm saying that there is spiritual activity. The devil is in full support of religion. He backs it 100%. Religious promotion is paid for and serviced by the devil himself. He loves it. He loves church services that God doesn't attend. Y'all hear me? He loves church services where the Holy Spirit's not welcome. He'd rather have you sit there than in a bar, to be honest with you. Yes, he would. Because one is blatantly running away from the kingdom. The other is dressed up like the kingdom, but also running just as deliberately away from the kingdom. You just don't know it. And the devil loves deception. Anything that carries deception, anything that carries uh, 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 appealing to one thing but being another. He, he loves that kind of stuff. And in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 20, it says, For you were included in the death of Christ and have died with him to the religious system and powers of this world. I'm reading out of the Passion Translation. Don't retreat back to being bullied by the standards and opinions of religion. Now listen, he's not talking about being delivered and set free from the world. That's one thing, to come out of darkness and to come into light, to, to come out of the, the, the oppression of the devil and to come under the submission of the king. He's not talking about when you got saved and when you got born again. He's talking about when you came out of religious duty. He's talking about when you laid down religious tradition. He's talking about when you took on the true heart and nature of the Father. And he's saying here now, don't retreat back to being bullied by the standards and opinions of religion. Have you ever noticed that about religion, that it has a bullying type effect about it? We're going to show you in just a moment. I'm going to show you in the book of John. Uh, where the, the very tactic of the religious was to bully and to suppress and oppress and pin down and put you under our thumb and, and, and keep you bound, not set you free. The nature of religion will never set anyone free. It does not have redemptive capacities. Religion does not contain redemptive capacities. There is nothing in religion that will set a person free. I'm making this 100% clear today, and I don't care who doesn't like it. I don't care what devil doesn't like it. But there is nothing about religion that will set you free. There, it, is a, it is 100% backed by the devil. It is probably one of the most greatest demonic forces in the earth today. It is, it is demonic Oppression that is widely accepted in churches all across the world, especially in America. And I can't be any more blunt or candid about that. I have, cre I have uh, uh, 
there has just been this massive disdain for religion that has welled up in my spirit recently. I mean, I, I don't want any, I, I don't even want any trace of religion in my life. It is that dangerous to the soul. It is that toxic to you as a kingdom individual. It's the very thing that Jesus came to obliterate. He defeated death, hell, and the grave. He defeated and challenged the devil on his own territory. He went down into the pits of hell, took back the keys. Come on. He gained victory and access to heaven for every single one of us. Only to allow religious activity to keep us from the kingdom of God. No, I won't have any, I won't have any part of it. He says, don't retreat back to being bullied by the standards and opinions of religion. Verse 21, for example, there's strict requirements. You can't associate with that person or don't eat that or you can't touch that. These are the doctrines of men and corrupt customs that are worthless to help you spiritually. Now, if you were here last week, this might sound like a complete opposite of a verse that we read out of 2 Timothy chapter 3. Avoid these such people. Remember that? Those that uh, have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. What was the warning? What was the, the, uh, the, the uh, command after that? Avoid these people. Stay away from these people. It's not the person you're staying away from. It's the spirit. It's the activity. It's the toxicity you're staying away from. Some of y'all might have started looking for a new job this past week because you're surrounded by these kind of people. Like Pastor Mark said, I can't be around them. I got to get a new job. I got to go. I got to work from home. I got to go solo. No, that's not what I'm saying. It means avoid carrying on with them. Avoid thinking like them. Don't allow their uh, ineptness to become yours. That you have to come in with more kingdom nature that will combat their religious systems. So that means there's certain things I'm not doing. There's no way in life you can avoid, literally stay away from. But he's giving a, a very direct and harsh command do not allow. He, he's letting you know this religion, it will contaminate. It will spread. You will pick it up. If you aren't careful to avoid thinking like them, there is no agree to disagree with a religious person. There is no level playing field with religious activity. There, there is no common ground. Religion is religion. And he's letting you know that the only way we're going to solve this issue and solve this challenge is if we stand steadfast in our kingdom-mindedness. But in verse 23, he says, For though they may appear to possess the promise of wisdom in their submission to God, through the deprivation of their physical bodies, it is actually nothing more than empty rules rooted in religious rituals. 
though they may appear to possess the promise of wisdom in their submission to God through the deprivation of their physical bodies. Uh, Another word for that would just be diet. I'm telling you diets are bad, but I'm telling you also that they won't make you more spiritual. It's actually nothing more than empty rules rooted in religious rituals. In John chapter 8, we see an instance with Jesus where he is approached by the religious to confront a woman that is lost. You know, this all started on Mother's Day where Jesus was invited to the house of a Pharisee. And while he was at this Pharisee's house, there was uh, a woman, most likely a prostitute, that comes barging in, uninvited, unannounced. Right? We know the story. She begins to weep and cry and wash Jesus' feet with her tears, dries his feet with her hair, even brings in an expensive perfume and begins to anoint his feet with this perfume. And we saw this contrast between the Pharisee and the prostitute. We saw this contrast between one that was dressing everything up and inviting Jesus into his home and a woman that was not invited. Or was she? See, I think Jesus lived such a life that invited sinners and invited the lost and invited the broken into redemption. He wasn't inviting her, uh, you know, into just mere friendship. He was inviting her into redemption. He was inviting her into deliverance. And and even without a, a, a personal invite, even without, uh, you know, being asked to come over, she responds to this and she shows up and begins to respond accordingly. And a Pharisee is, he's, he's dressing everything up. He's trying to impress Jesus. We know the nature of the Pharisees was never to get down and get raw and get real and say, man, this is what I'm struggling with or this is where I'm at. But they were always like, hey, Jesus, look at my stuff. And hey, Jesus, look at my practice. And hey, Jesus, look at my religion. And hey, Jesus, look at my rituals. And hey, Jesus, can you, right, right? The, the, the Pharisee was the one standing out on the street corner for everyone to hear and pray. Right? Jesus talked about that individual. It's all a show. It's all dressed up. But this woman, this prostitute, she's not dressed up. She's not trying to hide anything. She's, she's not trying to, 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 to uh, you know, put on for Jesus as if she's worthy. She's coming in and saying, I'm not worthy. I've got nothing to offer you. I I, I have nothing to bring you. There's nothing that I can supply you that that is worth you taking. But if you take me as I am, I promise I'll become what you've called me to be. That's the difference. The religious are too preoccupied with impressing Jesus to ever become Jesus. And when we're so 
consumed with impressing him with who we are, then we can never become who he is. We've got to be careful with this. We've got, to, we've got to monitor the heart of the activity, not just the activity itself. In John chapter 8, verse 1, it says this, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. He went to the Mount of Olives for a specific reason. If you read in the, in the verses prior to that, uh, he was surrounded by a crowd. But Jesus knew how to get away. And I believe that that verse right there is the key to the whole rest of the passage. Why is he going to the Mount of Olives? To get alone with the Father. To get alone with his Heavenly Father. You know why? Because that's where he learned the nature of his Father. That's where he discovered the heart of his Father. That's where he got close with his Father so that he could make statements like, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Every response, every action, every word, every uh, command that Jesus gave, you could be assured of this, it came straight from the Father himself. They were never at odds. They were never on opposite sides. They were never, Jesus never did anything, said anything, went anywhere, uh, uh, operated in any way that would not have been, that, that God would look down and say, well, you know, that's not the way I would have done it. No, he did in, in accordance exactly as the Father would. Every action, every response, everything he said came straight from the throne room, came straight from heaven itself. And it's because he got alone. Religious, don't people, religious people don't spend enough time getting alone with the Father to ever acquire the heart of the Father. We talked about this. We just had our Kingdom Rise weekend, uh, you know, this past Friday and Saturday. Friday night, I, I ministered and I just shared on the necessity of fellowship in union with the Father. We've lost the sacred art of fellowship with the Father. Relationship and fellowship are not the same thing. I can be in relationship with someone, but I can lose fellowship. I can come out of fellowship. And my fellowship affects my relationship. Jesus wasn't content with just being in relationship with the Father. He said, I need to be in fellowship with the Father. There's got to be a union. There's got to be a oneness. There's got to be a sameness. I cannot bring heaven to earth on my own accord. I can't bring my version of heaven. I can't bring my idea of heaven. I can't bring my opinion of heaven. You can't bring heaven to earth if you think that God puts sickness on people to teach them something. It won't work. You're going to be compromised in your ability to bring heaven to earth if you don't have the heart of the Father. So Jesus does what? He gets alone with the Father. And at dawn, he went to the temple again. And all the people were coming to him. The great thing about that is they weren't just coming to him, they were coming to heaven. They were about to be impacted by heaven itself. Can we say that about our lives? Have we spent enough time with the Father that when people come into contact with us, they don't just come in contact with us? They come into contact with the King. 
to come into contact with heaven itself. My response is what the Father's response would be. You know, Paul said that, follow me as I follow Christ. Be holy as I'm holy. What's that? Union, fellowship, oneness, sameness. He sat down and he began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. That's that bullying I was just talking about. You see how the religious respond to sin? I believe one of the greatest indicators of religious versus kingdom is how we respond to sin. How we respond to lost. How we respond to decay. I think that's why in this season, in in, in our lives and in the world, why we're seeing this on such display is because you don't know religion versus kingdom until brokenness shows up. Until decay shows up, until challenge shows up. They can look the same. Religion and kingdom look the same in comfort. Religion and kingdom act the same. They both raise their hands. They both take notes. They both attend services. They both have bumper stickers and things on their refrigerator. Uh, they, they both quote verses. But when challenge arises, one's going to bring an answer and one's going to run fleeing in the opposite direction. One's going to promote sin and the other's going to promote redemption. One's going to promote the lost decay and, and an exit strategy to get up out of here. And one of them is going to highlight the redemptive solutions of heaven and find out how to bring heaven into every situation. One is running toward the problem. The other's running away from the problem. And we need some kingdom first responders in these last days that are going to run head on into the burning buildings, run head on into the broken lives, run head on into the destruction, run head on into to those bound by sin, they're going to run straight into it and say, I've got the answer you're looking for. While the religious are too busy pointing fingers and bullying and bringing sinful people to the center so everybody can see how sinful they are, the kingdom is saying, I've got the answer for you. You see the difference? Oh, it's so different in contrast. You just need a challenging situation to arise to identify the difference between the two. It's the wheat and the tares. Remember that parable? The master sows good seed in his field. And overnight, some men, his enemy, it says, comes in and sows tares in the same field. And they, the, the, the servants begin to notice, wait, we got wheat and tares growing in here. And what did the master say? Don't pluck up the tares. Because you might pluck up the wheat along with it. Let the two grow together. But when the time comes, they will be separated. One will be burned up and one will be stored in the barn. Let it grow. Don't let the religious activity bother you. Let it grow. Because the day will come. But I don't think we're that far off that they'll be separated. Stay the course. Don't get plucked up. See, sometimes we'll start attacking 
the religious on their playing field. And I promise you right now, if you fight on their playing field, you'll lose every time. If you start backbiting like they backbite, if you start gossiping like they gossip, if you start getting a hard heart like their hard heart, no, stay soft, stay teachable, stay moldable, stay loving. Mm, this is good. I'm going to buy it myself. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Verse 4, teacher, they said, this woman we caught in the act of committing adultery. And in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? There's that question again. Oh, religious people love asking questions. They love to ask those questions, don't they? Look what verse 6 says. They asked this to trap him. The woman's caught in the crosshairs. They're really going after Jesus, not the woman. They're, you, this is what religion will do. Religion will use sinful people to further their own cause. Is that incredible? Lost people mean nothing to religious people. They mean literally nothing to them. They would rather see this woman stoned to death and made a mockery of in front of the entire town, in front of this entire... Remember, this is church. Right? Verse 2, as dawn, he, at dawn he went to the temple again. We're in church. We're in church. The religious display of that day and age. This is the religious of the religious. And to put on display in front of everybody, what will this so-called teacher do? What will this master do? What will this so-called Messiah do? You know, John's an interesting book because it really only records about the last six to eight months of Jesus' ministry. So by this time, it's very well known who Jesus is, what his mission is, what his message is, what he's come to bring. It's very well known. And they're doing everything they can. They're, they're pulling out all the stops. I mean, you read the rest of this passage. Read the rest of John chapter 8. It's just nothing but confrontation between him and the religious people. They're pulling it all out, even to watch a woman suffer in front of everybody in the middle of a church service. They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. This, this is how religious people will use their efforts, use their resources. Religious people will go at to, to, to great lengths, to great lengths, to tear down and destroy what God loves. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. And when they persisted in questioning him, 
See that? They persisted. Jesus didn't give an answer right away. Have you ever noticed that? Religious people, they've always got to have an answer right away. They've always got to have, what's your response? How are you going to respond? What are you going to say? When over the last couple of years, the church has been on, on, on this, this, this pedestal over the last couple of how are we going to respond? And they're not asking us because they want an answer. They are asking us so whatever we give as an answer, they can judge us. And, and you, you're, 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 it's a lose-lose situation. Don't say anything and they'll make a statement. Say something and say the wrong thing and they'll make a statement. It's a lose-lose situation. But Jesus stoops down. Why? Because I'm going to get the heart of the Father on this matter. I'm not going to be led by tradition. I'm not going to be led by law. I'm not going to be led by uh, man's ceremonies. I'm not going to be led by the world's responses. I want to know how my Father would respond. He's getting in tune with the Spirit of God. Will, will, Will the church in these last days take the time to get in tune with the Spirit of God? Will we take a moment and just stop reacting to every little thing that comes? Our, have you noticed that as soon as one, one disruption ends, they've already got another one ready and waiting for you to respond to? I mean, there's no break anymore. There is no break. If it's not a virus, it, it's racial reconciliation. If it's not racial reconciliation, it, it, it's countries fighting each other. If it's not countries fighting each other, it's the police. If it's not the police, I mean, it's just constant disruption, one after the other. It's nonsense. And the church is, is so, you know, we, we feel like we're behind the eight ball reacting to every little thing as it comes. We can't even keep up anymore. But will, will the kingdom arise and will we just stand and say, you know what? I'm shutting out the noise. I got to hear from heaven for a moment. I need to hear from heaven. I need to hear from the Father for a moment. The, en- the, the, the enemy would love m- nothing more than for you just to keep running his circles with him. Always trying to debate, always trying to have an answer, always trying to to bring an argument, always trying to respond, always trying to react. That's no way for the kingdom to live. It's no way for the kingdom to operate. You know, sometimes you just don't need to have an answer. That's okay. And it doesn't matter what they say about it. It's okay to go dark and get with the Spirit. Get with the Holy Spirit. So they're persi- they are persisting in questioning him. He stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone. Notice that in his statement, he doesn't deny the consequence. He says, yeah, you're right. By your measure, By your law, you're absolutely right. That is the consequence that is deserved. I mean, you can go to Deuteronomy chapter 22 and find the passage where God gave the command of what ought to be done. But God doesn't give commands to destroy people. God gives commands to invite people into an opportunity of redemption. And when we use the laws and the commands of God as a way to beat people up, 
then we're using the very thing that God gave us as a tactic to heal instead to destroy, instead to tear down. This is that inferior activity. Washing of hands might not seem like a big deal, but the problem is is that's how religion works. It starts out small. It starts out menial. It starts out something that that seems like it doesn't make, it's not that big of a deal, but it grows. Religion is like cancer. It grows and it becomes toxic. Until it infects and affects the entire body. And now we've moved on from You're not washing your hands properly. To you're doing something on the wrong day. To now someone is worthy of death. It increases. Religion is not content at staying small. Religion is not content at, 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 at being stored up in the background. It has to come out front for all to see. Until it destroys everything in its path. You've got to deal religion on the smallest level. You've got to deal with religion in, in the seed form. Because I'm going to tell you right now, it's much easier to pluck up the seed than it is to cut down the tree. And once that thing grows, once that thing starts to cover, once that thing starts to increase, once that thing starts to, it, it's tough to shut that thing down. It's tough to bring, to, 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 to destroy the tree. We need to go ahead and pluck up the seeds of religion in their smallest form. He's not denying the consequence. But the heart of the Father is to save and redeem. To save and redeem, not accuse and destroy. And when the, when the word of God becomes more prominent, uh, the, the laws and the commands of God becomes more prominent than the people's lives that it has the capacity to heal and change and restore and redeem, then we have gotten our eyes off of the true nature and heart of the Father. And we've gotten our eyes on, well, I can't believe they would do this. I can't believe they would do that. Y'all heard the story about the, the, the woman. She went to church. She, she went and visited church, hadn't been to church, uh, you know, very often. And so she went to the church, and, uh, you know, the, the pastor at the end of the service said, uh, hey, um, you know, really glad you're here. Awesome that you came. Uh, but, but next week when you come, um, you, you need to dress better. You shouldn't wear that to church. So the following week, the woman went back to church wearing the same thing. And the pastor said, did you, did you ask God? You know, I mean, this isn't what we wear to church. You asked God what you should have worn to church? And she responded and said, I did. He said he doesn't go to this church. He didn't know. He didn't know. I'm telling you right now, you can have religious activity and have nothing to do with God. You can have all the religious practice in the world. I don't want any of it if it doesn't have God. We 
when they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said, the one without sin among you. He's saying, I'm not denying that that's what should be offered up, but are you willing to do the same for yourself? So this is what Pharisees do. If you remember the woman, that the, the account that we gave where, uh, you know, the Pharisee invited Jesus to his house and he was thinking to himself, remember, if, if Jesus only knew who that woman really was. Oh, he knows who that woman really is. He knows, but he knows even far more than you do. He knows not only what she has done, he knows what she can be. Religion has, religion gives you no hope for the future. Religion can't show you what lies ahead. Religion can't show you what God has made available even to the most lost, to the most broken, to the most desolate, to, to, the, to the most tragic situations. God is in the redeeming business. God is in the restoring business. God is in the renewing business. And I wish you would just take 10 seconds and remind yourself of what God, for, what God did in your life what he set you free from, what he brought you out of, what he delivered you from in your life. Because while religion will point to your past, God is pointing to your future. And he's not looking at this woman's past. He's not looking at her present He's not looking at her current state, her current condition. He sees her through the lens of faith. He sees her through the eyes of hope. He sees her through the lens of redemption. You know, there was another man that was seen through the eyes of hope. His name was Abraham. When he couldn't have children, what did God call him? Father of, many, father of many nations. You know, there's another man that God saw through the eyes of redemption. It's a man named Moses, a murderer. You know what he saw? A deliverer of Israel. You know, there's another man that God saw through this lens of what lies ahead in your future. His name was David. He didn't see a shepherd. He saw a king. There was another man that God saw through the lens of hope and the lens of what is yet to become. It was a man named Saul that was persecuting Christians. But he met him on the road to Damascus and he changed his life forever and he became the greatest advocate of the kingdom of God. And there are more men and women sitting in this room today. He's not looking at your brokenness. He's not looking at your destruction. He's not looking at how far we ran. He's not looking at where you currently are. He's not looking at your state of affairs. He's looking through the lens of hope, through the lens of redemption, through the lens of yet what is yet to be accomplished? What is yet to come? What you are yet to do? He's looking through that lens. He doesn't see a woman worth being stoned to death. He sees a woman worth redeeming. And if you look at problems and you do not see redemptive solutions, you are more religious than you think. I might title this series, You Might Be Religious If. (laughs) 
I tell you, it's been a hard series to study because it's convicting. It's convicting on a whole nother level. Then he stooped down, verse 8, again and continued riding on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, do not sin anymore. Worship team, if you come, looking through the eyes of redemption doesn't mean we take a softer stance and approach on sin. It doesn't mean that we weaken our stance against sin. We become more accepting and we become more tolerant. That's not what I'm saying. And if you know us at Anchor Faith Church, you know that by now. That that, that is not, the heart of the Father is not to weaken the effects of sin for the sake of people. But it's to bring redemptive solutions redemptive answers to the sin. And when you don't have redemptive answers to sin, then you lose the value for the person that the sin has overtaken. God has never changed his stance on sin. Never has, never will. God has never changed his approach to sin. He's had the same approach. He's had the same stance. He's had the same position from day one. He hasn't weakened it. He hasn't become more tolerant of it. He hasn't become more accepting of it. The command to the woman was was the same command that the religious were after. Go and sin no more. But one would rather kill the person in their sin than redeem them out of it. One would rather devalue the person in the sin. And Jesus said, you know what? In spite of the sin, I still see great value. I still see a life worth fighting for. I still see a life worth dying for. We are not going to create a tolerant spirit towards sin. It won't happen. I have to view sin the same way God views sin. But I also, in the same breath, have to view people the same way God views people. Sin is great. Sin is mighty. Sin is strong. 
And that's why it demanded the greatest sacrifice this world has ever seen, that God himself would come, deprive himself of royalty, deprive himself of heaven, come to this earth as a man, a suffering servant, and take on every sin of the world. If sin wasn't great, then it wouldn't need a great sacrifice. But sin is great. Sin will rule. Paul said in Romans, he said, do not let sin rule in your bodies. It will rule. It will take control. It will run rampant. But he said, in the kingdom, we've got the perfect answer for sin. We've got the perfect antidote that the love of God, the love of God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave us the answer to the sin so we don't have to write people off anymore. So we don't have to cut people off with their sin and in their sin, but we can redeem and buy back and restore people out of their sin because there is still great value. There is still great worth. There is still great potential. There is still great ability. There is still great opportunity. And if we can get the sin out, he can get his spirit in. And we can become image bearers of the kingdom of God. Would you stand with me just for a moment? I want to invite you into this redemption. And this is what I want us to know. A lot of times we will resort to a one-time event, a one-time act. I, I gave my life to Christ, or I became born again. And that's such a great opportunity. I'm not trying to downplay the day that you came into the kingdom. You need to know that day. You need to have that day marked down, written down, remember that moment, keep it fresh. But I don't believe that God's redemption was meant to be relegated to one day. I believe he's still in the act of redeeming. I believe he's still in the act of restoring. And here's the thing. I believe that there are some saved, born-again people that have forgotten what that redemption was like, that have forgotten what it means to be saved, what it means to be born again, what it means to come into the kingdom, what it means. I mean, your sin was binding. Your sin was great. Your sin was something that consumed you. And now you've been brought into the kingdom of God. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast today. We trust you received a word from God. If you enjoyed this teaching, be sure to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes. By subscribing, you'll be sure to receive a new message every week as soon as they are made available. And if you'd like to learn more about Anchor Faith Church, you can stop by our website at anchorfaithbaldosta.com. There you'll find our locations and service times, ministries that are available for you and your family. You can even give financially in support of the ministry. Thank you again for listening, and we look forward to seeing you next time right here on the Anchor Faith Church podcast.